Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Michael McQuarrie. I'm an associate professor of sociology at the LSE, and I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Richard Sennett and Professor Julian Legrand uh, to um, the LSE stage. Tonight's lecture concludes a series of lectures hosted by Professor Sennett. So if you missed the previous three, uh, you can find them on the LSE events website. All of them are podcasted. Um, uh, so you can download those at your convenience. Uh, and they're certainly worth the listen. Um, Richard Sennett is a sociologist and professor of sociology at the London School of Economics, uh, and he's a university professor of the humanities at New York University. His research interests include the relationship between urban design and urban society, urban family patterns, the urban welfare system, the history of cities, design and space, community and solidarity, and the changing nature of work. Um, he has also served as a consultant on urban policy to the Labor Party, and is a frequent commentator in the press. Uh, Professor Julian Legrand um, is the Richard Titmus Chair of Social Policy in the Department of Social Policy and is now a professor in the Marshall Institute of Philanthropy here at the LSE. Um, he's one of the principal architects of the UK government's public service reforms and was a senior policy advisor in the Blair government. He is the author of over 20 books and 100 articles and is also a fellow of the British Academy. Professor Legrand is one of the most visible academics in public discussions of policy and welfare in this country. So Beveridge argued for the primacy of uh, the state in providing welfare. His critics then and since have argued for more support from civil society, from communal associations, churches, and voluntary organizations. This final lecture shows why obligations to others should be involuntary, and so why state support is fundamental in the provision of welfare. Um, okay, in preparation for uh, the discussion, um, if you are using Twitter and you are online, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSE Beverage. Uh, and beyond that, I would ask you to please uh, put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the speakers. Um, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully also be made available as a podcast. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to both of our speakers. But for now, please join me in welcoming Professor Richard Sennett. What I, uh, I'm showing you here is, I don't know how it is for you, when I see data flash up on the screen and then another chart flash by, uh, I, my eyes glaze over it. So what I've done is created a website where all the data that I'm going to be uh, showing you uh, is available. And you can also uh, argue with me on that website uh, and with each other, as people are starting to do. It's, and it looks like one of those uh, tweet sessions in which uh, people sort of get lost in combating each other. But anyhow, so, uh, and I'll leave that up on the screen when I finish. I want to tell you about these lectures that uh, I'm talking them out and I really want your comments because if and when labor ever comes back into power, um, I hope that we can uh, make a change in the way we provide welfare so that it is uh, more responsive to uh, uh, the conditions of welfare uh, uh, need today. 
which are very different from those uh, that Beveridge himself uh, uh, imagined in, uh, in the last century. As you know, 75 years ago, he created at the LSE basically the skeleton for the welfare state that has existed, although that skeleton is, is getting osteoporosis uh, ever, ever since. And I think we need to find a different way of thinking about welfare. What I'm focusing on in these lectures is not so much specific policies, but how we think about wel what welfare itself means. And uh, in this last lecture, I want to reformat somewhat the classic uh, debates about public and private provision uh, or civil society and state in another, in another version because it pretty much centers on who delivers welfare than what they deliver. And what I want to focus on is what welfare delivers that is in this lecture, which is a divide between provisioning uh, needs for empathy and empathic care and needs that are based on obligation, which are less personal uh, and uh, uh, more demanding. So I'm asking to sort of make up, make a a shift in your mind between thinking about this, all the issues about privatization and so on as familiar topics and looking at who can deliver empathic care as opposed to uh, who, what, what should be care that's based on obligations that society has to people who need welfare. To talk about the First, about empathic care, I want to focus on opioid addiction for a second. And I'm just going to show you a little about this. These, this, is you, uh, this is data gathered by my assistant, uh, Sasha Milanova, who sadly can't be here because her visa has run out, uh, and me on opioid addiction today. Here, I'll just show you what it looks like. It's a serious and growing problem. Here's some U.S. data, which is even more cataclysmic. And I want to get to that part right now. And the thing about opioid addiction is that what we know about it is that it requires the effective responses to it require a kind of face-to-face -face engagement uh, in which uh, the provision of empathy is part of the, the provision of, and a major part of the provision of care. This isn't entirely new. In the housing estate in which I grew up in Chicago in the 1950s, uh, the predecessor to, to the opioid crisis was alcohol addiction. And the, in that housing estate, those of you who are here, the first uh, lecture can maybe recall what that looks like. Um, 
the most effective group in treating alcohol addiction, which was very prevalent in, uh, in, in my time, was Alcoholics Anonymous. Not professional social workers, but Alcoholics Anonymous who were treating this as a face-to-face -face condition in which people were, were, in which empathy for the condition of the other was something that a group would provide. And that data on the effectiveness of AA is now reproving itself in uh, the uh, in the treatment of, of opioids, which are a far far more general um, phenomenon in in the society. They are. I'm talking about opioids rather than drug addiction of the kind of heroin or crack cocaine sort, which is what I knew in my housing estate when I left it, because that's a realm of, it's, it's a criminalized activity, and it has a different kind of economic structure built into it. Opioids are like alcohol, something that is available without becoming a criminal. Um, I said I'm not going to talk about the Sacklers, so I can only say that the criminals, but I would say that the, the criminals here are the people who have, uh, like the Sackler family, who have manufactured opioid needs in great detail. So that's, this is a, this needs a particular kind of care based on empathy. The place uh, and then I, oh, I'm actually going to show you, just, I'm going to skip ahead here, just so you look at, you haven't, you haven't seen any of this. Um, this is, this is my, the housing estate where I grew up. Um, and this is a comparable estate today uh, in, uh, in London. It's, the, this is a, uh, the closest to the estate I lived in, in British terms. And what you can see here is that there's a great deal of neglect. And the reason for that neglect is that the councils that run these estates, just as the council that runs my estate, do not feel that they have an obligation to do more than a set set of circumstances to keep the estates up. And the question there that we're going to be looking at is why, how is obligation constructed so that what you get is decay and the, the needs of people are, are not being uh, met for a certain kind of care, which is based not so much on face-to-face uh, empathy, but on a duty which this, uh, which uh, those who control, the, this is private, that's public, uh, this is social, the other is, this is a housing uh, state. Uh, why does this happen? Why do people um, cease to feel that they're obligated, even though they feel the conditions, fulfill the conditions of a contract to provide care? So those are the, that's the dialectic of what I want to talk to you about. Now, 
about the, um, uh, you could say that this, um, about the, the, the issue of empathy, you could say that the groups that are most, as organizations, most likely to provide this are religious organizations. Um, that is, that there is a duty of, of pastoral care which should attach itself to religious organizations. AA is not an organization as such. Any, any group, any body of, of alcoholics can start an AA chapter. They get a little training from, there is a small uh, central staff in the, all the countries where AA works. But basically, people are on their own for this. It's good and bad, because uh, if somebody is, uh, if, uh, you know, got medical problems like cirrhosis of the liver, uh, em empathy isn't going isn't to cure that problem. But the body of alcoholics who remain uh, uh, physically competent uh, are people who, uh, for whom the contrast between AA and religious care is very strong. And religious care and volunteering in general, as you can see from these charts, is, de is decreasing. This is religious affiliation is going down, church attendance is going down. Uh, you can see here we made a chart about, um, uh, uh, about who is likely to volunteer. In, this is only for church, church groups for activities like pastoral care for people who are opioid addicted. And you can see what is happening there. And the question is, why is religion uh, with, uh, uh, not furnishing uh, that impulse of, of empathic care? That's what we're trying to do. We have many more of these charts on the website. Uh, I think one guide to that is in the answer to that question is in the writings of my teacher, Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher. Uh, Arendt argued that churches, synagogues, and mosques are the only empathic public bodies in her term. We would say civic bodies, but she means civic is public for her. Capable of providing empathy to strangers and that's what the public realm meant to her, a realm where uh, you provide empathic care to people you, you don't know. In an AA meeting, uh, you don't belong to an AA group. Anybody can go to any AA group anywhere around the world. And for uh, addicts, the same, there is an addicts anonymous as well. The same thing is true. For Arendt, that's the mark of what she calls public realm, that there is empathic care for strangers. And she saw that religions were uh, the only way to organize empathic care 
for strangers. So she called them public, we would call them civic bodies in that sense. Um, and distinguish them, for instance, the kind of care you might give to an uncle who is, who is on, on opioids. That's, that to her is not public. It is that you will care for strangers. She both celebrated that and hated it. Re uh, not hated is too, too strong a word, but celebrated that kind of empathic care, civic care, and rejected it. And I, I want to explain to you why. She thought that the danger of religious empathy was that it aroused pity for the poor, both in Christianity and also, uh, and I think mistakenly, mistakenly in Judaism. And that the empathy for suffering was also an act of feeling a kind of compassion for those who were less fortunate than you. And to Arendt, what's built into that is condescension. She argued that in its religious forms, that empathy inevitably leads to a kind of condescension, pity for people who are less fortunate than you are. And she thought this was the wrong way in which pity should be organized, uh, in which empathy should be organized. It should be, in her words, fraternal rather than compassionate. Uh, she would have, she, as uh, I'm not telling you anything, it is in the public record, she was married to an alcoholic, and the uh, AA sessions that that her husband had to attend for decades, were to her models for a different kind of politics of empathy than religion. So what we're looking at here is something that, if you were at the first lecture that I was talking about, is very uh, resonant. The Arendtian vision is very resonant with the notion of respect for people because they are dependent on others, because they can't care for themselves. That, she would say, that respect is fraternal, that all of us in some way can't care for each other, uh, for ourselves, that we need other people. And it is opposed to the kind of welfare thing who looks uh, uses words like damaged, or uh, 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 people who are who are unable to take care of themselves. She hated that language. And analytically, it for her this is in her it's clearest in her. She wrote a book on Saint Augustine and compassion. It's her doctoral dissertation, which is really the most important book you could read about uh, from Arendt, which is uh, about the absolute, um, the absolute curse that compassion for the unfortunate visits on people who uh, are in need of help. So that's at, at one side of, of this. How do we create groups of um, of care, of empathy, which don't descend into pity 
if I can put it in my terms. And the only way I think to do that, and it applies to all welfare state policy, is to look at the people who are getting welfare as both the equals of those who are providing it and also who are involved in their own care. And I come for the last time to the AA um, example. Um, the group, I don't know if any of you have been to an AA um, uh, meeting, but the group is responsible as a whole for when people fall off the wagon or something like that. Quite critically, the group is responsible to saying, you, you crumb, you shouldn't have done that, or you know, how can we help? Call me at three in the morning, God forbid, uh, and so, so on. Uh, the notion is that you're all, uh, you're mutually supportive. And the welfare systems that we have now, which are highly social workized, in which you have to get a, a master's degree in social work practice in order to listen to somebody else, are just the opposite of that. As are religious groups which uh, degrade from empathy into pity. So on that side of this issue about welfare, what I'm going to be arguing is that we have fewer social workers and more welfare systems and more welfare groups in place for, uh, for problems like this, like opioid addiction, which are mutual self-help groups. doesn't sit so well in the Labor Party now, but I will win this argument. So. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk to you about is obligation. And here's another side, however, of religion. That is, whether you want to or not, you are ob obliged to take care of people uh, who need help. It's founded in Judaism in Deuteronomy. I'll just read it to you. Um, uh, for instance, um, Deuteronomy 26.12. You will set apart a tenth of everything you produce in the third year. That's the year for giving the tenth to people who have special needs. You will give it to the Levites, outsiders, and, window, and widows. You will give it also to children whose fathers have died. They all of them will have plenty to eat in your towns. Um, you find a similar kind, it's a tithing system, and you find it similarly in Islam, uh, in which, and again, the same tenth is referred, although it's every year, not every third year. And that's what creates waqs, which are religious bodies. Here on this side, which we would think of as more traditionally public or state kinds of welfare, by making the by changing the terms of thinking about, about who gives to the obligation to give, we change a lot of the assumptions that we have about the welfare state. Um, it, for, it, in the first place, this attitude is the opposite of means testing. That is, I will give you something 
only if you're worthy of being support or if you really need help. The obligation, uh, the, the emphasis on obligation is on provision of a certain amount of money, no matter that you are testing the worthiness of the person uh, to receive it. Very hard for us, particularly Anglo-Saxons conditioned by neoliberalism, to imagine that that wouldn't be an abuse, right? So it's almost something unthinkable for us. Um, there are ways, however, in which this notion of obligation makes uh, uh, a is a kind of contract, a contract unlike the kinds of contracts that we have in um, in most welfare systems now. I'll give you an example. In the housing estate management, which led to the Grenville Tower fire, there was a contract written to provide uh, you know, these, these defective materials, which were not identified that way, uh, in a way to, they're actually renovations of the original uh, towers. The contract specified what would be given, when it would be delivered, and uh, how it would be financed. All of this perfectly, as it were, perfectly kosher, right? The fact is that the obligation, as the manufacturers are now claiming, ended when the provision was made. It's a contract which is one in which the idea of obligation is based on specification of obligation. Whereas a different kind of set, uh, a different concept of contract would say that that's the wrong way to think about obligation. It's open-ended and it's non-specifiable uh, in quantitative terms. In the first lecture, I mentioned that that's the kind of contractual relationship embodied in the Chinese notion of guangqi, right? You, somebody is dependent on you for something, uh, you satisfy that need, uh, you then have an obligation to return it, but not in the same form. For instance, if you lent um, a young person 20,000 pounds to go to university, they necessarily don't have to pay back uh, 20,000 pounds to you, but they're obliged to you in a form that may take much longer term and be, del and be returned in other ways. Take care of you when you're old and have Alzheimer's, for instance. Um, the idea about this is that an obligation is a contract of, uh, of performance which is something that does not have specifiable conditions. Uh, it, uh, we, uh, uh, of termination. In the housing estates I showed you, to show, I'll show you mine. This is Cabrini Green. Uh, unusually in Chicago, um, 
like Grenfell Towers, this is clean. That is, this is not mafia-run housing estates. Most of the housing estates in Chicago are run by a, a, a mafia. It's, it's a shocking place to live. Uh, but this one is clean. The estate began uh, um, degrading uh, despite the fact that all these contractual uh, elements were filled in keeping the lawns clear of dog shit and so on because the needs of the people in, the house, in our housing estate were evolving. They evolved, for instance, from uh, alcoholism into, um, in, into very heavy, uh, this, is, this is the drug center of Chicago, the drug market of, uh, market of Chicago until it was gutted. And the drug addicts in this estate needed a different kind of help than the city was obliged to give. But it had fulfilled its contractual obligations. So what I'm arguing for is a kind of guangqi that is uh, a, a principle for understanding obligation, that obligations are not contractual in, uh, in terms of short-term performance, but are lifelong and are non-quantifiable. Uh, now, I'd like to end by saying this. I'm sorry I talked so long. The objection is made to the kind of views of welfare that I've given that... Um, uh, that we can't afford it, that we can't uh, not afford basic income, that we can't have open-ended contracts, and so on. And I have two things to say to you about that. As a new Brit, when I read that HS2 is going to spend $56 billion on speeding up by half an hour the um, links between Birmingham and uh, London, uh, with 27 billion uh, for the first stage of this. My question is, well, how much welfare would that buy? It would buy enough to have basic income for two generations, and you'll see these, the, we've costed it out on that. It would buy thousands of hospitals, tens of thousands of schools. It would solve the housing crisis for poor people in this country. When HS2 was, vo was uh, voted in, uh, not voted in, but was authorized by the parliament, the notion was, well, this is, of course, we have to do it. It's an infrastructure project, even though it has minimal rewards. Whereas welfare spending is nickel and dime to death, as the Americans would say. So it's, we can't afford it is a very relative um, way of thinking about what we, what we can spend. We can't afford to do something that involves taking care of other people, but we can afford 56 billion pounds uh, for speeding up the railroads. So my argument about this is that we've, there's something fundamentally irrational about the ways in which 
it's not just us you, in the UK. It's the same thing in, in the US, long ago identified by John Kenneth Galbraith as the notion that anything that helps another person is too costly. Right? So we've got to get out of that mindset. Uh, I would say further about this, that the issues that I uh, presented to you, treating dependency with respect, practicing sacrifice without virtue signaling, which is what we talked about last time in rationing, uh, asking, making empathy fraternal rather than based on pity and compassion. These don't cost anything. So there, I don't know, maybe there's somebody at the London School of Economics who could quantify these, I hope not. But treating somebody else with respect is, is about the practice of dealing with people in need. You know? these, are, these are ethical values, if you like. So what I, in these lectures I have presented to you are ways of reimagining uh, uh, the practice of dealing with need rather than the attempt to say that this is somehow um, a threat uh, to people in the larger society economically. Uh, and in that, I have a profound disagreement with my friend and colleague, um, uh, 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 Robert Skidelsky, who argued that fundamentally we have to cost welfare and see how much, uh, how much care we can give. I, I just don't believe it. I, I don't believe it materially. I, you know, I think we can afford $56 billion of better welfare, uh, 56 billion pounds of it. And I also think that the attitude towards dependence, towards uh, giving people a basic minimum uh, to survive uh, or deal with problems that are empathic, uh, like, uh, like the opioid crisis, or meeting the obligations of people as their needs change in an open-ended way, that these are things that we can do without, as it were, reckoning the cost. And as I say, if, if we, labor ever comes into power again, and I live that long, I don't know how long that's <laughs> going to be, that's how I hope we'll reform the welfare state. So may I thank you all for, for being such an attentive audience. And uh, since I'm looking to the future, the, the master of remaking welfare under Labour's previous regime uh, is Julian uh, Legrand, and I'd like to ask him to speak now. Thank you. Well, as always with Richard, um, it's immensely thought-provoking, and I have a rather um, uh, incoherent set of thoughts to follow, um, uh, because I'm trying to place his argument in 
arguments that I have had and discussions I have had and debates and to see how it reflects. And I start with um, uh, Richard Titmus, who's... Um, Chair, um, I no longer hold, actually, because I'm now part-time, and, um, uh, and I had to give it up, sadly. Uh, but um, He was my predecessor, uh, one of my predecessors at LSE, um, something of a saint himself. You, uh, some of you will have come across his work, um, or something of a knight, one might say. Um, and... Um, he um, wrote uh, a magisterial book on the welfare state um, called The Gift Relationship, which was about the uh, different ways of delivering uh, blood, um, but much more than that, about different ways of delivering welfare services. And he emphasised the notion of altruism um, and concern for others. Um, and... He discussed the um, ability of the, uh, in that case, it was, he was contrasting the ability of the market to deliver um, this versus the ability of the state uh, to uh, deliver this uh, effectively and came down rather firmly on the side of the state uh, as doing a better job than, uh, than the market would. Um, but in the process, he did discuss altruism and the nature of altruism and um, Arising from and thinking about how altruism informs what you're doing, it seems to me that there are two, there are two um, sources of altruism, really, or, to, or let's say concern for others. One might arise from compassion, uh, and one might arise from a concern for the rights of others. You think, you think that somebody is being treated unfairly. Um, it's not necessarily that you feel compassionate towards them, you just think that an injustice is being done. Um, now, see, now I, I suppose my first query to you is, does that map across to uh, empathy and obligation? Um, is, is, um, is the sort of compassionate route, is that essentially what you mean? Uh, care that is based on compassion, uh, is that similar to care that's based on empathy? And then the next question is care that's based on obligation. Is that close to care or being based on a concern for human rights and so on? Um, and how, that, how, those, how those two relate. Then, um, again, there's the general question which comes up and it relates to some of Timson's work, but others' works too, about the, uh, the, the title of this lecture is The State and Civil Society. Um, and in that, there's an implicit um, sort of contrast between the state uh, as a provider of well-being or provider of welfare and civil society as a provider, a provider of concern for others. Now, I know that that, that isn't in quite your focus again, but again, there does seem to be an implication in what you're saying that on the whole, it will be the, uh, the civil society that will be providing the empathic care uh, whereas on the whole it will be the state that we're providing the obligatory obligation care. Um, now I'm not sure that's always true and um, I'm not quite sure where incidentally you put Alcoholics Anonymous, presumably they're part of civil society uh, and presumably they are delivering something closer I think to what you think of obligation care rather than um, and of course there are others, I mean if you think something of Médecins Sans Frontières um, I don't. They are providing enormous amounts of care. I don't think they're really doing it um, out of 
uh, obligation-based care. Um, it is more, I think, uh, a, a compassion doesn't sound quite right either, I have to say. Um, but it, there's, there's something, something else to do there, something to do with professional values. Something, certainly a care for others, but it's driven by something either than a sense of obligation or a sense of compassion. However, I'd be interested to see what your, your views are on that. Um, um, but if you think about civil society providers versus state welfare providers... Um, I think you have to think about uh, you can think about the they both have relative merits um, in a sense uh, related to your uh, question of empathic care versus obligatory care I mean the standard criticism of civil society providers of charities NGOs and so on is that uh, there's insufficiency they won't generate they basically won't do enough um, there's amateurism they'll basically amateur in what they do um, they're particularist. They only go for particular groups, usually the deserving rather than the undeserving. Um, and they're paternalistic, um, which is close to your, your condescension, your arrant condescension. Um, and those are four. And then they're major criticisms. I mean, I have to say particularly the insufficiency one always hits me as very powerful, very powerful argument for state welfare. Um, but, of course, there are also problems with state welfare, and the ones state welfare vision and the ones that relate to what you're, you're arguing. Um, uh, one of the standard arguments is it discourages innovation. Uh, one of the great things about civil society is that they can be innovative. They, they, they're prepared to take risks uh, in their provision, systems of provision in a way that state cannot or will not. It's interesting to know why the state is reluctant to, but it's something to do with risk, something to do with the penalties of failure. Uh, the failure um, of being pilloried in the press, the failure of being grilled before a House Common Select Committee, uh, and so on. The state is reluctant to take um, uh, innovation, whereas the, the civil society can. Um, one a problem with the state providing well-being is that it, uh, providing welfare, is that it, it can crowd out voluntary action. It can crowd out voluntary action, and this brings us back back to Titmus. So, Titmus, I think, believed in a that, that people had a kind of pool of altruism within them, a pool of concern for others, um, and it was very important that, in some senses, you you were a, you had opportunities to release that pool, that opportunities to to be altruistic. And one of the problems why he disliked markets. Um, he felt that, that they closed down those those opportunities. Um, uh, now, but the same, a similar argument does apply to the state well-being. It can, there is a, a slight danger that it can crowd out, it can close down the opportunities for people to exercise their altruism, uh, their exercise their concern for others uh, in ways that um, uh, can be, that, that I think Titmus would argue, and indeed I would argue, um, diminishes the, the wider society. Um, and I suppose that brings me to my final point, is that there is an element in what you're saying, Richard, which, is, which sounds a little bit either or, either empathic care or obligation-based care. Um, and actually, um, both the world in which we live in practice, but also in theory, why not have both? Um, it's, um, uh, it's perfectly possible to have both operating along one another. There is a slight danger of crowding out. Um, of if, if we focus too heavily on the obligation 
uh, care that might crowd out, crowd out the empathic care. Um, and it, it has to be said probably the vice versa too. Um, of course, it is also worth noting that there could well be um, forms of crowding in, that we develop one form of care, um, uh, voluntary care or whatever, um, and that actually um, runs alongside and, and encourages state care to come in in various areas, or vice versa, that state care can, can come in and encourage voluntary care. It's quite interesting that at the moment um, something like 30% of civil society, of voluntary se third sector income, about a third, comes from the state at the moment. And about 36% uh, of the last figure I saw um, of third sector organisations receive some money from the state. So we get a kind of joint, a joint activity here um, that um, I think is uh, uh, perhaps doesn't serve us um, uh, as a perfect system, but maybe perhaps it's something close to the least worst. Thank you. Thank you. Should I respond? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that, and particularly for raising the issue about altruism. What I am not arguing for is altruism. Uh, it's uh, the divide between Titmusians <laughs> and Arendtians lies just there. In, uh, uh, what I, uh, and that divide is that em empathy is not, a, in my view, a moral condition. It's something that comes out of a fraternal interaction between people. In my book on cooperation, I try to explain uh, how it is that people will care about each other, not out of self-interest or of abnegation of self-interest, but through interaction. And uh, this, uh, that is, that if you're in a condition of, of exchange with other people, uh, that of talking with them, of, 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 of the physical expressions that impressions that they make on you, that gradually you weave a kind of web of mutual concern. It's really important to me because I think, I mean, Titmus was a great man, but it's too much, I don't think welfare should be based on morality. That's the whole point of these four lectures I've given you, that what we think is as ethical values are not they're not moral values of doing good. They're, they are values that come out of, uh, well, they are, there is one, if you like, ethical value to them, which is respect for the other. But that is something that develops through interaction. And I think for, for, for Arendt, the notion that being good was a state that meant that you would do good feeling that you want to do good is a state that uh, will lead you to do good was something she disputed. It will lead you ultimately to, uh, uh, to a kind of compassion uh, which, is, uh, which is unequal, which leads to, a to an engagement with the suffering of the other but not the humanity 
of the other, if I can put it that way. But for me, the, I think the essence of this, this was the discussion we had last, last time about rationing and sacrifice, uh, that it's not virtue signaling. Welfare is not a state, being involved in a welfare system is not a state of saying, how wonderful I am. I want to give things back, so on. There can be that motive. But it's the, to me, the engagement with the other is a process that produces these, the values that I've talked about. So that's a real fundamental difference. I, don't, I, I think you're closer to me than you'd like to admit. But certainly between, uh, between these, these two, two realms. I have to say that my... Uh, what I'm interested in is about this state versus civil society thing, this may just be cynicism on my part. I think it's that you are much more likely to be failed by a government than you are by an NGO. Uh, whether that NGO is a labor union, which we'd like to hear from you. This is a man who's worked in labor unions for a long before this misspent uh, middle age in London School of Economics. But I, I think any process that politicians get their paws on directly is likely to degrade. That's, now, this is a prejudice of mine. But I would like to see more non-governmental agencies, NGOs, which are in this third sector, take over the uh, experience of, of, of welfaring and that those NGOs be smaller and smaller and smaller. AA is an NGO, you know, it's, uh, which has very little government support, by the way. Uh, so is Addicts Anonymous. Uh, they are structurally, uh, they're NGOs just the way Médecins Sans Frontières is. I, and I want to say about Médecins Sans Frontières, since you mentioned it, we have a study of why people, doctors go into Médecins Frontières. It's not because, you know, they're virtue signaling. It's that they find the practice of that kind of medicine more satisfying than the practice of for-profit medicine to them. There is, uh, there is a kind of engagement uh, in the process of doctoring people in extreme need that serves something in themselves. That seems to me why Médecins Sans Frontières is such a robust organization. It's not doing good. And that's fundamentally what I, um, the it's the, it's the Eberbrücken in German, how do you say it? It's the rough passage we have to make from moralizing welfare to socializing it. Is it clear what I, what I mean about that? Finally, I have to say, absolutely, I don't think it's an either or issue about whether uh, the, uh, a, a, a welfare group meets an obligation or uh, provides empathies, and the different groups will do that in different ways. The, the welfare groups I've been involved in, which are mostly housing associations, um, are 
coexists in, in for instance, in this community. Oh, I meant to show you. I got to put on the site so that you can uh, coexist with um, with uh, groups that that are are more oriented psychologically to this sociolo sociologically this transaction. But I think the no what I'd like to see is the state in the welfare state shrink. And these intermediate groups, like labor unions, take on a greater burden of providing, a greater role in providing welfare. Do you have, could you make a comment on this? You, you shouldn't be oh, just our, our I'll organs. make a comment generally. Okay. Um, so I mean, one thing is, I mean, I think that there are two cross-cutting parts of this. One is, something which you've always been interested in throughout most of your scholarly career, which is the content of these relationships rather than just their purpose, yes. right? So a book like Respect is about dignity um, and how do you convey that when you're caring, which is a theme that came up a lot in this talk, um, and situates you somewhat orthogonally to a lot of other people that write on these issues, your attention to the content of these relationships. And you talk about respect versus obligation versus empathy as being the desired goal. Um, and that seems reasonable to me. It's something that I think good labor unions strive to do with their members, um, and they try and make it about mutual help, not about providing a service. Some unions don't do that very well. Um, and they act like it's an obligation that they have to meet towards dues payers or to people on a contract. Um, but that also raises the other thing, which is that I think you're sort of lining this up with organizational types or institutional arenas probably more than it actually is. So uh -huh. you can have a conversation about the content of the relationship. I'm not so sure how well that maps onto whether it's state organization, uh -huh. NGO, or well, that's mutual. Well, point, too, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I accept that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are plenty of NGOs that treat it as an obligation. There are, you know. Um, and when you talk about, you know, AA, I think it's much more about association, so mutual coming together to solve a particular type of problem. So AA is an association more than it is a professionalized, formalized NGO. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, the other thing is that in the background of this is, so you talk about how you're opposed, you know, you want to socialize welfare versus moralizing welfare. But of course, the other one that you mentioned as, a side, as an aside a couple times in the talk is you're opposed to financializing welfare. Um, <laughs> you're opposed to the costing of welfare. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you're situating sort of an ethics in opposition to that, but um, it brings to mind uh, Samuel Bowles, who's an economist, um, and he basically argues that when you, when you treat these things as something that has to be dealt with through incentives, you're automatically undermining the ethics of it. Um, in other words, those two things exist as a, in a zero-sum relationship, and they can't be mutually, they can't situate themselves next to each other very well um, when you're trying to do things like think about how to provide care. Um, so the more you incentivize a certain type of action, the more you're actually undermining the kind of solidarity or mutual obligation that it might be dependent upon. 
Um, so he gives examples of when you like change, for example, how firefighters can take sick days. And when you change it so it's an incentive, all of a sudden they start taking a lot more sick days, <laughs> even though the incentive is supposed to work against that because it undermines their professional obligation to show up at the firehouse. Um, um, and it seems like that also is kind of a thing that, that might be related to what you're talking about in terms of these sorts of, the way these relationships work. When you try and incentivize it or instrumentalize it, you're automatically undermining the basis for other forms of action. Um, yeah. Yes. I, it's something in me is disturbed by that, but I'll, I'll find out why. Okay. <laughs> You'll tell me. Should we go to questions from the audience? Sure. Um, so why don't we take a couple questions and let Richard and Julian respond. Uh, yes, right here in the green sweater. That's you. It, yeah, maybe it's not green. Um, well, I think um, what you've put forward is really good, and it would be it would change um, much more about society than just the welfare system. And I'm totally in agreement with you. On a practical level, um, what about people who are more vulnerable? And sort of with an AA meeting, people decide that they're going to go and they get together as a group. But if you've got elderly people or children, for example, that need welfare. What, what about that? Because um, they might not be able to present themselves and and sure. get together as a group. I mean, I'm I'm entirely think it's fantastic what you're putting forward, but on a practical level, there might be some problems. What do you? Should we take one more question, please? Yeah. Right up in the front. Yeah. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, would you take the microphone? Just. Um, my, my question is obviously for, for both of you, uh, and it perhaps leads on from that lady's point about how to target to get effectiveness. Um, Fifteen years ago, um, what was your images of how things would have changed in the provision of welfare, private or public, and uh, for, for good or ill, and how would you see it now uh, compared with what you hoped or expected would happen. And that really leads on to a follow-up question. Um, digitalization, automation, artificial intelligence. Any comments? Because, yeah, I think you, I, I would worry that there's a real danger of this being seen as a magic wand. Thank you. Start. Then and now. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, very briefly on that last question, I mean, on the first, I'll leave you to, okay. uh, to respond to it. Um, I suppose um, I would, uh, um, I was always um, a believer that um, one of the real problems in the welfare state uh, was in state provision in terms that we relied, that we, we relied too heavily upon monopoly providers and that what we needed was um, competitive providers providing incentives um, that would um, allow people that if they were getting a bad service from their local GP or local school or whatever, they could move to others, um, and that uh, they could exit, uh, and exit would give power to... Uh, and exit would give power to voice uh, in the sense that um, if someone complained um, about the... 
the quality of the schooling their child was getting or the quality of care that their, um, that their elderly parent was receiving or whatever. Uh, the fact that, that the provider knew that you could move somewhere else would, be, would give that power. Um, uh, I think um, um, I was... Uh, I also believe that on the, you could have competition arising from private companies uh, to provide these services. I'm less sure about that now. I think I prefer the idea of what we call mutuals, of um, something closer to employee cooperatives um, as, providing, um, as providing the services, although I'm still, still a believer that competitive pressure will be good. Um, in terms of AI and, and digitalization. I think one of the things that, um, that the Labour government, the previous Labour government, um, we didn't try uh, uh, very hard was to work on mechanisms of voice, mechanism by which if someone's getting bad quality service, um, they can express their voice. And their, partly because the whole business of complaints and rest of it is so, so laborious. So difficult. Um, now, with the digital, one of the things about social media, media is that it's much easier <laughs> to reflect. And indeed, as we all know, we endlessly get endlessly bombarded with the desire to give feedback. But I think, in some ways, that could be um, a, quite a useful mechanism for actually trying to drive up the quality of uh, welfare services. Um, so I think we might have more interest in, in voice as a mechanism for trying to improve quality. Uh, uh, thank you for this, this question about, I mean, there are different forms of p participation, you know, for, uh, I mean, one thing that I, uh, when I write this up, that I'm thinking about is, is how do all these things fit into something that, for people, my generation, very present, which is the threat of diminished cognitive presence. How could, how could uh, i.e. Alzheimer's or some, something along the scale on that, when people are not really very competent in being able to pr provide their own welfare and in which uh, obligation is, uh, is extreme? Uh, and uh, I'm actually trying to study various modes for, uh, it's not a simple process because oftentimes people have very, very um, uh, what's called creviced forms of Alzheimer's where they're very competent on some things and not on others. The long-term, short-term memory is only one example of that. But it, it raises the same question as the way children do, who are... Um, they're not competent to give themselves welfare. And this is something that I have to, I, I want to think it out in ways that are sort of practical about what, by doing this study of Alzheimer's groups, and there are many, many different ones, which ones seem to be the most engaging for people who themselves have, have, uh, have this, this condition. But thank you for raising this. The notion, what I'm talking about here, are really adults who are capable of, of interpreting their own condition. That's, that's the ground for that. Or adolescents, even you, are, you know, uh, people who are capable of making sense of their own uh, place in the world.
Um, so, let, can we have some more questions? Yeah. yeah. Right here in the red sweater in the middle. And then in the back, uh, the blue jacket. Um, I, can, I can see how in some uh, future arrangement with a population with universal basic income who are able to to choose to do activities that are caring and voluntary, that the sort of arrangement you're describing is very appealing. Uh, but can I suggest that uh, this suggestion that we, we switch from state provision to uh, NGOs is, uh, in, the, in the current existing society, is one of the sort of fig leaves of neoliberalism that um, what we're faced with at the moment, for example, particularly in healthcare, is... Um, very, very tight uh, funding, decommissioning of services, and, and their replacement with, with fig leaves of, of uh, charitable activities that, that um, allow the conscience of the people who are governing us and the people that vote for them to think that something's been done for the, for the people that are the most in, in need. Um, so we have, just in mental health, for example, a massive shortage of mental health nurses, but we have a lot of noise about volunteering to become mental <coughs> health champions, which is you know, pretty offensive to people with actual mental health problems. Yeah, okay. Can, can you turn on your, your machines? Thank you very much. Your provocative discussion. Um, there's one thing that bothers me, and it may be that I'm completely out of order, but what do we do about people who are greedy, who are getting actually two billion profit a day? You know, how do you deal with people like that? And also the self-centeredness of people, which is very apparent to me today. I feel as if after the war, when the health service was started, that people had a feeling of coming together, supporting each other, so it's a completely different climate now. And as we know, the health service anyway is being privatized and money is going to be made out of that as it now in the long-term plan goes the American way. So greed and self-centeredness, what do we do about that? If only I knew. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that if I could just for a second respond to this question. I am very sensible what you're saying. These, uh, there are certain kinds of, um, of things that only skilled uh, people can do, and they need to do this in the context of access to all, which is what NGOs alone don't pr provide. Uh, I guess my worry about this is that the state itself is, is failing so miserably that there are going to have to be alternatives which come up from civil society uh, which take over uh, when the state fails it. For mental health services, for instance, it's in the NHS now very hard to, un unless you're, you're a, a raging schizophrenic, it's very hard to get much in the way of mental health care. Uh, um, and maybe that's something that requires mutual associations 
to step in, to feel... I, I mean, the, the practicality that I'm sensible to is that the state system itself is degrading. And it's degrading in part because it's privatizing, it's making welfare for profit, you know? Um, and it's, it's not supporting the things that, that the people within the health, within the welfare system, good people, want to do. Uh, and I just, I think we need to look at these intermediate institutions like cooperatives or unions. Or, there, there have to be other ways to make up for this state failure. I guess what I should say about this, which I haven't said, and I say this too as a social theorist, is that I think, and, but it's not so theoretical to any of you who have followed Brexit, is that what we are seeing now is a collapse of state institutions that worked 40 years ago and no longer work. And their institutions of governance which are no longer able to provide or indeed to govern. So to me, this whole question has been encased in the fact, I, I didn't want to bring this up in the lectures, but it's why I press this so much for these intermediate institutions, that what we have is under the weight of, uh, of monopoly capitalism, which is what we're seeing today, we see a collapse in state structure generally. And rather than go, oh my God, that's terrible. Uh, you know, we, we need to remake a strong state. That we need to take more defensive measures against this collapse. I think, I, you haven't asked me this, but I'll tell you anyhow. <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen in three months with Brexit. That we're going to have to self-organize because uh, the state is going to leave us absolutely adrift from food, medicines, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think what you're seeing in Parliament is part of a structural collapse of a certain kind of state structure. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about with this is what to do given the fact that that state is not, doesn't work anymore. I don't know if that's persuasive to you or not, but that's, that's what's in the back of my mind about this. I think I could add, on, on, on endorsing that on a somewhat more hopeful note, that we are seeing that the growth of organizations that we increase, your intermediate organizations, that we uh, doing quite some work on at Marshall, um, called hybrid, what we call hybrid organizations. These are organizations that... Um, that combine profit with purpose, and it relates a bit to your point about self-interest, that, uh, that um, yes, these are organizations that um, um, have a motivation to generate a living for themselves and for the people that they, uh, uh, they employ, but at the same time, so there, there is an element of self-interest in what they try to do, and they want to make a profit in order to keep the institution running, and going, um, but at the same time they have a purpose, a social purpose that they're trying to achieve. And you're seeing a growth of social enterprises, uh, public service mutuals, uh, and various organisations of that kind that are all had this kind of hybrid, this combination of objectives, this combination of aims um, that it's quite difficult. They're quite difficult to run, and they're quite difficult to operate. But they they are they are growing, and many of them are uh, proving rather successful. 
Can I ask you an impolitic question? Do you... No. Uh, <laughs> I have Go to ahead. give him a scotch. I can see that in order to get an answer. Do you have uh, much faith that the present regime in the Labour Party would be supportive to this? Uh, <laughs> all right. I, I just, you've answered this um, question. <laughs> There's, there is a lot about the present Labour Party I welcome, chiefly on the foreign policy area. Well, not in relation to Brexit, though, I have to say. That now qualifies as foreign policy. Uh, um, but um, I, I, I do see some support for the mutual idea, for the Dow mutual associations. I mean, partly because the Labour Party, of course, is a combination of the... Well, the Labour movement is a combination of the Labour Party and the cooperative movement. Um, so there, there is some element there. Whether the present leadership is committed or interested to that, um, well, you, you're probably closer to it than I am. This was... I shouldn't have asked you this question. <laughs> Let's have another question. Um... Right down here in the white shirt, and then in the back with the blue shirt over there. I'm sorry about these microphones, but otherwise you, people don't... Also, it won't make it into the podcast, yeah. I would Hi. like to come back to a question I made you two lectures ago, and it is about the role of citizenship in the provision of uh, welfare. So... Uh, today you talked about uh, NGOs that for me seems to be quite depoliticized even if you talked about uh, unions. So my question is uh, what role of social struggles in expanding the boundaries of citizenship in providing a welfare beyond uh, beverage? Well you and I disagree because I don't think struggle against the state is a way to provide welfare. I think that's If I can be honest with you, since you are a critic of me, uh, I think that's a very old-fashioned view of how to deal with the problems of capitalism. And that's why I believe in you know, cooperative movements, mutual associations, and so on. Uh, I don't think that legislative politics, given the state of... Uh, 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 the organization of the state now, is a very effective way, struggle against the state, is, is very effective. In the last, I mean, I, well, we had this discussion in the last lecture about whether simply treating the state as an irrelevance and trying to colonize the civil, civic realm is an effective strategy. And I would say that That seems to me more realistic than getting the right um, uh, MPs into office. But this is a debate you and I have. And, um, you know, I just think you're thinking about this in old-fashioned terms. And I, I want to think about something else. Anyhow, we will continue this. Go ahead. Hi. Um, so... We were talking a lot about how the state is in a disorganized state and it cannot do these things that we want it to do. But I think if we take it back to the argument against altruism and against unequal compassion, for me, I see that the state is something that can actually make, uh, make uh, like play against this by normalizing kind of 
equal compassion, if we would put it that way. But I think it really depends on the state that we're talking about right now, because I think the point of reference here has been the UK and the US, where things are obviously in a certain way. But I come from Finland, and for me, actually, what you talk about in terms of not doing things out of more obligation or feeling better about yourself through doing them is something that, for me, is very, very prevalent in my system. Actually, I think it's just something automatic. We like paying taxes. It's normal. It's not a moral thing to do, you know? Um, so for me, I suppose... Do you not see any way that in which in other countries such as the US and the UK where this seems to be a problem, they could change and the state could play the role that you would want it to play? You rouse once again my desire to, I, to move to Scandinavia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, the problem with the US and the UK UK is that what what we call neoliberalism, which is uh, it's not it's not liberalism; it's something else. Has accustomed people to think that uh, not to think in those in those ways. There are I, I worked for a long time for the UN, and there are lots of countries um, uh, in the so-called global south <coughs> which operate on the same principle, small, small countries. Um, it's, it's not a moral position, it's something that's more cooperative, and, and uh, in, particularly in countries like Lesotho, you know, where it's either cooperate or, or, or uh, 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 disappear. So, uh, uh, I th I th if I may say what you're saying, is that there's something very peculiar about regimes which have profited from uh, global capitalism or whatever we want to call this. We'd have to ask Saskia what's the right term for this. Uh, that has made them feel that cooperative activity of all sorts is a, a kind of um, pie in the sky, do-gooder, uh, unrealistic, and so on. So, uh, and, uh, it isn't. So, uh, uh, but I wouldn't say that you have that because of the state you have. It's because of the society you have, you know. But that's another. Could, could I use that to ask you a question too about um, uh, <clears throat> how much does your conception of the importance of obligation-based care, how much is that dependent upon it being directed to people like us? I mean, the thing about um, Scandinavia is that, yes, you, there is very little resistance to tax increases at the moment. However, um, with the rise of immigration in Sweden, um, and the, Sweden has been... Is there anybody from Sweden here? Uh, the, I mean, Sweden has been amazingly altruistic uh, in its taking in of immigrants, but that is creating, beginning to create a resistance to tax rises. Denmark has gone the other way, in a sense, and has tried to firmly to keep out immigrants, uh, partly in order precisely to preserve its welfare system and its system and so on. So I think there is a real question there about, with heterogeneous societies, can... I mean, any form of welfare state um, is vulnerable, um, and I wonder if particularly the kind of obligation-based welfare state you're talking about is particularly vulnerable to that. It's a very good question. 
It's a very, Can I add one thing to that? Yeah. Which does go to it, the, the, the thing that I would add, which he hint, which Julian hinted at, but then he's talking more about the type of society and how heterogeneous it is, which matters. But the other part of it is when you're thinking about care, it's care for who. Um, and um, things like altruism or even webs of mutual obligation or solidarity are often easier bases for provision of care when people are a lot alike. Um, so when you think about something like, you know, what demographic group in the United States supports government intervention the most? Well, it's African Americans for pretty obvious reasons. Um, it's relative. You know, the Weberian regard for person doesn't operate there, whereas it does with NGOs. Um, and NGOs tend to, as Julian pointed out earlier, be very particularistic. Um, and they tend not to take care of people of color to the same degree, for example. Um, all I can say to you about this is that I, I worked for a while in Sweden um, or with people in Sweden in the 90s when there was a wave of, of, of refugees from uh, uh, the Baltic, from the wars in the Balkans. And one of the most generous countries to accept them was, uh, was Sweden. And uh, I was in and out of this because I, I was consulting for a while. Um, as part of the UN, was providing immediate help for them. Um, and why I'm puzzled is that something shifted in Sweden, which I still don't understand. The Swedes took in lots and lots of these Bal uh, Bal Balkan refugees, many of whom were Muslim, and all of whom didn't speak Swedish. And they were able to, there were, there were problems, but they were able to digest this huge number of, of refugees. Whereas the fears uh, two years ago in Sweden that began to surface about refugees are about, and immigrants are about much smaller numbers of people who pose much less of a, a drain on state budget. And what confuses me about this is, um, with the exception of Germany, which has got its, that's its own sort of thing, that a lot of the fears of, of immigrants that we are seeing in Europe today are about relatively small numbers of people. They're symbolical fear. And uh, it doesn't negate what either of you were saying, but it's got a very peculiar, in my own experience, got a very peculiar context, which is that, the, you know, Sweden opened its doors to these people. They taught them how to speak Swedish, which, believe me, is not a simple language. Um, it made a huge effort to integrate them and take them in. Sometimes they didn't return the favor. But, um, and you could say that, you know, that was true of uh, Britain at certain points in the 19th century, that it made an enormous effort to take in, uh, uh, took in Jews, for instance, at the end of the 19th century, very large numbers. What puzzles me is this 
trigger of this kind of symbolic threat. And um, as I say, you know, the symbols are real. They have this force. Whether, you know, Britain has taken almost no refugees in. You know that. That is a, a shameful thing about this conservative government. They haven't fulfilled even the pitiful refugee quotas that they, they have. And yet, in Brexit, you know, the refugee, the hordes streaming over uh, Heathrow, you know, uh, uh, all welfare cheats and dependents and so on. This is very animating for, for people. So I think the question in, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud about this, but maybe the, the, the issue is why when, when you have lower numbers of, why you have symbolic threats like this that can be so animating and so dispossessive of a welfare system, even though the system can cope with them. Uh, that's certainly true in our country, in Britain. You know, there are so few refugees here in the first place. Uh, look at the Windrush, for instance, which is not a refugee problem, but a problem of people abandoned by a system as though there were hordes and hordes of people uh, that were going to overwhelm the system. You know, the, you know what I mean, people who, who came from the colonies long ago. So that's the puzzle to me which is why this is such a threat. And I don't think economics alone really explain it. But it's real. Even if symbols are real, as, as we know. So. And I think we have to wrap it up there. Thank you all very much for coming tonight to listen to Julian and Richard. Um, and please, if you have comments, welfareafterbeveragewordpress.com. Post them up there. I'm sure Richard would love to hear them, right? I would. Yes, okay. please do. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming.